We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are focused on what? Scripture. Because according to God, without it, we are ill-equipped. If you can look at the church today in the state that it is in, there is no question the church today is ill-equipped. In fact, that word church gets thrown around so loosely. Same with thing with Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Oh, you know, I believe in God. I was born in America. Whatever. I, it sounds crazy. There was a guy, you guys may know these names, you may not, but there's a, there was a guy that died a couple of years ago. His name was Nabil Qureshi, I think if, if I'm saying that right, or something along those lines. He was an apologist. He was a uh, Muslim. And... Uh, he argued and argued and argued with this Christian until he ran out of argument and then came to Christ. It's a really interesting story, uh, but he died of cancer a couple of years ago. But the guy that led him to Christ, who became a Christian in jail, well, in prison, it's a, it's a long story, but it's kind of interesting. So essentially, what happened is this guy was a sociopath. He went to prison because he hit his dad in a hammer with a hammer in the head multiple times because he could. He had like no empathy whatsoever from a young age. and had all sorts of issues. He was an atheist and all that. Not that those two things are necessarily connected. I'm not trying to insinuate that. So he gets in prison with this guy. The guy's sitting there reading the Bible. And he said, the only reason you're reading that Bible is because you were born in America. If you were born in any other country, you wouldn't be reading that Bible. Right? And this guy is a born-again Christian who had committed a bunch of felonies Prior to becoming a Christian, he was in the Navy. It was in the Navy that he came to Christ, and after he got out of the Navy, he went and confessed, and now he's serving his time. And it's a really fascinating story because this guy would begin to, uh, he would read his Bible every single day and would go on extended fast. Well, this other guy is an atheist and says, well, I'm not going to let the Christian outdo me, so he would go on extended fast. So if the guy fasted for seven days, the other dude was like, I can do ten. It was a competition. So much so, they actually put him in solitary confinement because they thought he was starving himself on a 43-day fast. He did 43 days because the Christian did 40. And the reason he was doing it was all these different things. But he made the comment, he's like, the only reason you're reading this, they would argue back and forth, is because you're an American. Thus, you believe in Christianity. And it was in solitary confinement that his argument started to fall. All the seeds that had been planted were starting to come to harvest. And this guy leads this Nabil Qureshi guy, I'm not saying his name correctly, to Christ, who became an apologist and led many Muslims to Christ prior to his death. I mean, it's just an amazing story. The reason I'm telling you all of this, it was all centered around one thing. It was centered around Scripture. You can call yourself whatever you want. Jim Wallace, who was a, a cold case homicide detective, said there was only, he, was a, he was a cop for years in L.A. And he said, the only Christians I ever met were my police officer friends, who when I asked them why they believed what they believed, they would say, well, I mean, just because I have faith. But their whole lives were grounded on evidence, so that didn't do anything for him. The other Christians that he always met were the people that he was arresting in the moment, not exactly speaking highly to Christianity. And so we've got this idea, it's like, well, you know, all i got to do is be born here, and I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm a good person, God's going to let me in, all of these other things. But the reason we have all of these misconstrued beliefs is because we don't have a solid understanding of Scripture. 
And because of that, we go around saying and doing a whole bunch of stuff, but we don't even know why we say or do it. You ask somebody in a church that practices Lent, ask them why they do it. They don't know. They just do it because it's the Lenten season. Well, who determined that? Why do we meet on Sundays? Does anybody know? Do you know why we have church on Sundays? Well, it's because Jesus changed the Sabbath. Are you sure? Because that's not true. So we don't even know why we meet on Sundays. It's just something that we do. If we can't express why it is we go to church, then what's the point of going to church? It becomes nothing but a social club. Right? So is there a reason that we come to church? Of course there is, but can we express it? Is there a reason we read our Bibles? Of course there is, but can we express it? Is there a reason that we pray? Of course there is, but can we express it? We use all this lingo and these words, but we never begin to ask what they mean. So we've been focused in Ephesians chapter 6 talking about the armor, right? And we start in chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principles and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer, supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That was fast, wasn't it? I can go faster, I'm just telling you. But we've been talking about this armor. And we just, we love the armor. It's one of our favorite things. In fact, Children's Church loves the armor. You know why? It makes cute cartoons. You can draw out the armor, look at this soldier. Look at this stuff. Like, this is pretty intense stuff. This is not a dude that's just like, you know what, look at me, I'm just going to wander around. All of this had a purpose. You think they wanted to wear that? I'm sure not. Like, I hear about these military guys in training, they put on an 80-pound knapsack and say, hey, go climb that mountain. Who's lining up for that? Oh, yeah, no problem. So here it is. This isn't something they wanted to do necessarily. It was something that was nece- necessary for them to survive. They needed it. There was never a doubt. Because if they went to battle and you leave any part of these off, they're exposed. And we've broken down each piece and what it's meant and what it's talked about. We've gotten into the Greek and the words that are used there, how it means more in the original language than it does in English because we just kind of arbitrarily throw these things out there. That we've got the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, everything locking into it, the sword of the spirit. We've got the feet uh, or the shoes that are, our feet are shod with the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith that goes above all, everything else that stands in front, what they did with the shield, all of these different things. We've broken down these components one by one, getting to the last one talking about ultimately prayer and the different kinds of prayer and all these different aspects. But we, we, we leave things out and we go through it quickly and we're like, oh, you know, that's cute. But do we really think that we need this armor? Because if we did, we would act different. If we really believed that we had the armor on, then we would know that no weapon formed against us will prosper. We can say it. We can get tattoos of it. We can get throw pillows with it stitched on there. But do we act like it? Because if that statement is true, then there is nothing that will come against us that we cannot boldly walk into. But yet we don't. We walk in fear. We walk afraid of different things. I mean, there's some craziness out in this world right now. And... The cows are coming home. 
that we are catching a glimpse of a lot of really bad decisions that have been made over the last 20 and 30 years that are now coming to a head at this moment. Because we've not stood on truth and what is right. We have coddled people. We've allowed ideas to go out there. And we are facing situations we've never faced. I mean, if you guys, are you guys familiar with Andrew Womack Ministries? You guys know who he is? He's got a Bible school out in Colorado. He's a great Bible teacher. I mean, not the most exciting speaker, but incredible Bible teacher. He really does break things down beautifully. And um, when the whole pandemic happened, he and a bunch of other churches decided just to go along. It's like, we're just going to close down because we, we, you know, we want to try to help as best we can. Let's face it, there's no right or wrong way to handle the situation because we, we've never been in this situation before. People were moved by what they felt was right. They went the direction. And they were concerned about the fact that, you know, okay, we're allowing the government to shut us down. But it's like, you know what, they're just trying to do what's best for them for the intentions that they have, you know, so we're just going to kind of play along. And now he has taken every precaution as they've reopened. They have their summer conference. They have 30% capacity, which is what they were told they were supposed to have. They've taken every other precaution to have this event, and now they've received a cease and desist letter from the governor. He's taking legal action against them. Why? Because you caved. You gave in. Now, it seemed innocent at first. It was maybe well-intentioned. But if you give the devil a foothold, I don't know this governor from the man in the moon. I'm not saying he's the devil. It's like we just have to be, we have to constantly fight for what belongs to us, both from an American standpoint, but also from a believer standpoint. Because the enemy going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, please don't line up to be devoured. Tell him to shut up. Quit your roaring. You ever had an annoying dog that never stops barking? Shut up. If you haven't had one, come to my house. I'll introduce you to one. I mean, all of these things have a purpose, and why do we take any part of it off? We're to put it all on. We're to leave it on. We're to walk around boldly. These guys walked around brashly, arrogantly, because they knew nobody could come against them. And now we get off into the idea of prayer. And honestly, guys, prayer is one of the most crucial aspects of this. There's multiple kinds of prayer. I'm not saying you have to go through your prayer Rolodex to figure out what kind you're going to use today. But it's all the approach. It starts in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful of this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, we talked about how there were six types of prayer that are mentioned throughout the New Testament. The prayer of consecration, the prayer of petition, the prayer of authority, the prayer of uh, thanksgiving, the prayer of supplication, and the prayer of intercession. We've looked at it. We're not going to spend any time on that today. Broken them down, looked at how they were used, looked at the different aspects of that. But as I said earlier, we often use lingo and words without ever asking, well, what does that mean? So, have you supplicated today? Last week, most of us didn't know what the word meant, but now we do right? We've used the word for years. We've never asked the question, what does that even mean? We've celebrated Lent our entire lives. Why? We don't ask the question because we don't want to be faced or, or take the time to look it up. So part of this is we talk about these different types of prayer. As I talked about, it says praying all with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Praying always in the prayer, in the Spirit. With all prayer in the Spirit. Supplicating in the Spirit. What does that mean? Now, as I told you last week, most of us would just say, well, that means praying in tongues. Does it? Are you sure? We've never stopped 
to ask the question, where do we get that idea from? We've just accepted it as truth. And if we cannot defend a position, that means we are not equipped for the question to hand. We should be able to answer any of these questions. So, let's begin in Romans chapter 8. Verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now there's a lot going on here. and There's a lot going on in Romans 8. Romans is an incredible book. It's written by Paul. It's kind of like, here's how you do all this different stuff. You get past chapter 8 into Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. He's talking specifically about the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. Their past, their present in chapter 10, and their ultimate future in chapter 11. With that background in mind, it gives, helps you understand what he's getting to here. So, who helps in our weakness? The Spirit of God. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we don't know how we should pray. Ever been there? I don't know what to ask for. Okay? The Spirit does what? He intercedes on our behalf. Now, what is this intercession? Well, we see it again. He makes intercession for whom? The saints. That's not all people. According to the will of God. This word intercession here is this Greek word. If I got anybody would like to attempt to pronounce that, I'm going to let you. Because I'm not. Because I can't. I don't know how you say that. Hyperintentionano. How'd I do? Sound all right? You don't know either. Hypernachos. <laughs> Hallelujah. See, he intercedes on our behalf. <laughs> now, this word is an extremely old word. It talks about falling on behalf or falling in on behalf of someone else. In other words, picking up the slack. The idea could be used in the same way. When Jesus was carrying the cross and he fell, he couldn't carry the weight anymore. What happened? Somebody comes in and picks it up and helps him carry it the rest of the way. We would call it a rescue right? Somebody's out there swimming. Why do we have lifeguards? In case you can't make it out. They dive in. They're ready at a moment's notice. They're constantly watching. In fact, we, we took the kids to World's Fun a few years ago and down in the Lazy River. You ever seen them at the Lazy River, the lifeguards? I thought they had Tourette's because they just keep doing this. And I'm like, what on earth are they doing? Finally dawned on me. Lazy River. How you drown in a lazy river. If you drown in the lazy river, you deserve it. Okay? That's just the reality of it. I know, that's terrible, isn't it? But it's true, and you know it. So, the idea behind this is this rescuing that takes place. So here we put this in context of Romans 8. It speaks to the time when the Holy Spirit locks up with us in our circumstance and begins to help us to pray out what we don't know. When we are at a loss and we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit will help in. And, or jump in and help us. Now, when are those moments? It's usually moments of emotional weakness. The number one way. Something is going on in our life. We're so distraught. We just don't know what to do. Here He comes. He's going to jump in there. It's so we can be rescued, so we can be renewed, so we can be delivered from whatever we're facing. Whatever is going on, that's when it is. Most of the time, that's the case. There are other times where it's, we just don't know how to pray, and He jumps in and helps us. But a lot of times when it is us, individually, it is an emotional issue that is going on. Should we be moved by our emotions? No. We have to be moved by what we know. So we don't get 
off kilter here. We always stay grounded. And if that's the case, then we don't have to worry about this. But here we are. So how does he intercede for us? He intercedes with groanings which can't be uttered. Do you know what that means? We think we do, don't we? Because this is often used to speak of what? Praying in tongues. Have you ever seen the word praying in tongues or those words together and tied into this groanings? No, you haven't. But we have made this assumption. Why? Because we just, what else could it be? So maybe we should look into this, of what this is and how it's used. So we're going to go to the book of Exodus. Chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 23. It says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and he acknowledged them. So here you have this groaning that's going out. So were they praying in tongues? No, they weren't. But they are groaning. We'll go into this more in a minute. Let's look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So they're groaning again. When we think of groaning, what do we think of? Complaining. Ugh. Like when you tell your kids to take out the trash. Ugh. I already loaded the dishwasher. It's not my turn. Again, come to my house. I can help you all out if you don't know what I'm talking about. In Judges chapter 2, verse 18, it says, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So we see the same thing again. Are you picking up on a theme? of what is happening, why they are groaning. It is a result of their bondage. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 23, or verse 24, it says, I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break Pharaoh's arms and he will groan before him with groanings of a mortally wounded man. This groaning in this context is used at a moment of weakness and a simple crying out because I have nowhere else to turn. Okay? Now, who experienced this? It is somebody who has recognized their weakness and begin to open their hearts to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This groaning that comes out, He leads you to pray in a way that you do not know because you don't know what else to do. When you are in bondage, you don't know, how do I get out? What do I do? This is, the, the treatment was awful. We're talking about Exodus. When he talked about a mortally wounded man as he's beginning to cry as loud as what he's crying out for something. He doesn't know what can save him, but he needs something. So when we recognize our weakness, that it is not by what we can do, but it is simply through him, it opens our hearts to what God wants to do. It allows him to get in. We connect with the Holy Spirit. Now, how does this tie in to Ephesians 6 and 18? Look at it again. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. We have to determine what that means. These two verses are connected. I'm going to show you that here in a minute. Another version, the NASB, the New American Standard, says it like this. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, when the NASB takes a literal translation of the Greek, 
So when it says it like this, oftentimes that is how it is worded in the Greek. To pray at all times in the Spirit. So if Paul tells us that at all times we should be praying in the Spirit, is it enough to think that maybe somewhere it tells us what that is? In other words, instead of jumping to assumptions and making uh, conclusions based on nothing but we've always heard it that way, I think it's fair to say that we should be able to dissect this and see what praying in the Spirit is. Because Paul says as a part of our armor, we should be praying in this at all times. You guys with me? Y'all seem like you're like, oh yeah, I don't know. Are we kicking over cows today? We don't know yet. We're going to find out, aren't we? So let's look at this term and how it's used. This is where we often turn to Jude. It's one of new people's favorite books of the Bible because you can read an entire book in five minutes. The book of Jude, it's no chapters, it's just that. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Do we see the same term used again? Absolutely we do. Do we see it defined in any way? Absolutely we do not. So let's not make assumptions. Let's be good Bereans. And let's look at what is going on here. So let's go back to the first verse of Jude. We're going to break this down. We're going to begin to look at this and we're going to come to a conclusion, not based on how you grew up or what you've heard your entire life, but simply based upon what Scripture says. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Now who are we talking about here? He's indentured servitude to Jesus. He is the brother of James who is the brother of Jesus. Okay? Why is he putting all of that in? Now we know who he is. It matters because it's an authoritative source. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now who is that? It's not everybody. It's born again believers. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch what's happening here. Because what is happening in the church, in other words, remember what the church is, it is a body of believers. At this point in time, they didn't necessarily have a building with a big sign out front, that says Church of Jude, or whatever. He's writing to believers, and what has happened? Certain men have crept in unnoticed. These men were marked for condemnation because they are ungodly. And what about their ungodliness is there? They turn the grace of our God into lewdness, number one, and they deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are two things against them. The lewdness and the denial of God in Christ, all right? But where are these men? In the church. And apparently, it's causing a problem. People are being led astray. How does a person get led astray? If you're not grounded in what the truth is, you'll be swayed by stories that you hear. Now, what is lewdness? We should know. It's not a word that we often use anymore. But this is talking about sexual perversion. That is what the word means. It is a sexually perverse men who have come into the church and somehow gained themselves a platform. Now, how does that typically happen? How does somebody gain power or at least a voice to speak, a platform to speak from inside of a congregation of people? 
There's the number one way, money. The more you give, the more power you have. There are people that abuse that. There are people who do not. But, and I'm not saying that's what happened here, but that's the number one way. The other way is they go in and they get super loud. They begin to stir the pot. They begin to get people to go with them in their way. You know what? You really think that pastor knows what he's talking about? You think that's right? I don't think that's right. Did you hear what so-and-so said? I've told you guys this story, and, and I know it's out there, but I listened to an interview that was done by a friend of mine. He's a podcaster. He does a two-and-a-half-hour interview with a former high wizard of a satanic church. Right? Kind of crazy. The guy's kind of crazy. And... Uh, He's Catholic now, believes he's a Christian, maybe born again. Again, that's not default by any means. But the bottom line is, he said as a part of their, their organization that they had in the satanic church, they would send people to infiltrate churches to get places, positions of authority. And would always bring a sexual component or a monetary component to the table to create dissension inside of the church and bring the church to its knees. And it worked a lot. If it didn't work, they wouldn't do it. But they would get these people in here. Does that sound maybe what's going on here? You think that guy knew, you know, he's like, hey, we just read in Jude. We should do this, right? So there's something going on. Now, let's look at verse 5. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, what the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So we've got an event here, the Exodus event. Who knows the Exodus event? Israelites, Okay. Will the Gentiles know this? Very likely, because the whole world really knew about it. It, was, it is something that God constantly references. So, he destroyed those who did not believe. Okay? Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. What's he talking about here? Genesis 6. The sons of God came down and took for themselves daughters of men and created a race of giants called the Nephilim. There was a sexual component there judgment look at verse 7 as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire what are we talking another sexual component so you see the lewdness factor you see how he's tying all of these things together now verse 8 likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries so, what are dreamers? These are people that are having dreams and claiming that these are of God. They defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 9, but Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebu rebuke you. Now, ask me where you can find that in the Bible. You cannot. That event is nowhere found, so I don't know much about it. But these speak evil of whatever you do, they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So what are these things? This constant corruption, this constant uh, lewdness, this constant thing. These are the people that are in there. And verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So a good Berean would begin to go and look at all three of those events because we've got Cain, Balaam, Korah. We all know who Cain was. Most of us know who Balaam was. Hardly any of us know who Korah was. He didn't make the top ten list. But there's something that happens. First of all, when it says, whoa, that's not good. That is extreme. We don't think much of it. 
But woe to them. I mean, that is bad. The way of Cain, coming to God in your own way, bringing a sacrifice, bringing an offering that God did not require. It was bloodless. And it wasn't a first fruit. The way of Balaam for profit, being bought as a voicemail of, or a voicemail, a voice of God. Could leave a voicemail, why not? But being paid off, pretending to be a voice of God, Korah led a rebellion against Moses and tried to stir the people of God up against them. So do you guys see what's going on here? This is the backdrop of the entirety of the book of Jude. He is dealing with an issue inside of the church. This is the context. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What is a love feast? It's a good chance it's talking about communion. It was a time. Now remember, what we do in communion is not what they did in communion. And communion for them was a Passover meal. But they would break it down and do it often, which is how we got to what it is today. They did not call it communion. They would call it a love feast. And in this, what's happening? These same people intertwined with you are feasting without fear. They only are there to serve themselves. They're like a cloud without water. What good is that? It doesn't bring rain. It produces nothing. Late autumn trees without fruit. What good's a tree that's supposed to produce fruit that doesn't produce fruit. All of these things are here talking about these individuals. That's the backdrop. They're intertwined among you. Now Enoch, verse 14, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, again, Enoch has a prophecy about men that are happening in Jude's day. And he's saying these men are what? Ungodly. So in order to be ungodly, there must be a godly way in which they are not being. There's a distinction made. Verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Remember the story I told you. What did they do? They would get in there and they begin to get people on their side and begin to cause dissension inside of that body of uh, believers. But you, beloved, remember the words that, which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their ungodly laws. Now stop for a second. Did he not say that the apostles told them that in the last days that there would be mockers? When was this written? I don't know. He didn't date it. It was before 100 AD. And he said, guys, this is exactly what the apostle said, that in the last days. So what do we know about that? Well, we're closer to the last day than they were. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Now, what are we talking about? Individuals in the body who are serving themselves, they are grumbling, they're complaining, they're walking according to what they want, their own lust. They mouth these great swelling words, tickling ears perhaps, you could say, flattering people to gain advantage. But they do not have the Spirit. He's making a distinction between them 
and the others. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So whatever that is, there's a distinction between those with the Spirit and those without inside the same body of believers, whatever that is. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ until eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So, we just read Jude. We accomplished something today. Aren't you excited? I'm excited. But what do we see here? The context is talking about people intertwined inside the congregation who are living ungodly. Does that sound like our modern day church? And what is the number one distinction between them? The Holy Spirit is exactly right. Some have them, have him, some do not, and they're in the same congregation. Does that sound like the church today? Not this church. We all, we're awesome. But, but think about that. Because there are people inside of the church and who are living out their lives. This is my truth. God loves me. He wants me to be happy. He made me this way. Why would He make me this way if it's wrong? All presumptions being made, and we see that being preached today from the church. The number one thing they're dealing with here is a sexual component. There's one way sex is to be happening. Husband and wife, God's way. Anything outside of that is unholy. Okay? So we see here, we build ourselves up on our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So here's what we know. We don't know what that is yet, but we know that we can do it, and you, number one, have to have the Spirit of God. Well, duh. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? But praying in the Holy Spirit is one thing we can do. But let's look at this term used in other components. John chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now here's a question. What is that? How do you worship? Because it says we worship... In spirit, right? Well, we also pray in the spirit. How do you worship in the spirit? It also says that we worship in truth. What does that mean? It's, ta- it's talking about the identification of the Holy Spirit. In ancient Judaism, they had these prophecies uh, throughout numerous Old Testament passages that was connecting a time of when the spirit is poured out that believers would be able to worship in the Spirit. Okay? It's just talking about what we talk about, charismatic spiritual worship. Well, let's look at the Old Testament first. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and and Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Who are we talking about here? talking about Saul. Okay? Then you should go on forward and there come to a terebinth tree at Tabor. 
There three men are going up to God at Bethel. We'll meet you. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a, a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will receive from their hands. After that, you shall come up to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen that when you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. So there's a number of signs that he used to be looking for. These guys come and bring in all this stuff, and then you get a bunch of musicians who are doing what? They are prophesying, right? Now, I know that if you're like me, you question this verse, this whole passage, because we all know that tambourines were created by Satan and should not be used, especially by white people, inside of a church setting. But yet, here it is. If the drummer wants one, fine. Outside of that, take them away. I literally hid them in the church I grew up in because everybody had one. It was Thunderdome. It was ridiculous. (laughs) Young people don't have any idea what that means, but anyway... What's he looking for? A group of prophets, and with them came these instruments, and he is going to prophesy with them. As the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he's going to be turned into another man. Fair enough? So we've got this prophetic spirit that is looked at as having a connection. And what were the instruments used for? Used for worship. Okay? Let's look at another one. 1 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 1. Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun and, and who should prophesy with harps, string instruments, and cymbals. You see what that said there? You prophesy with harps. How do you do that? With stringed instruments and cymbals. You notice the tambourines are gone. It's because David knew. And the number of the skilled men performing their service was of the sons of Asaph, Zachary, Joseph, Nethaniah, Asherah, Sure. The sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied according to the order of the king. So we have a group of prophets here. Of Juthadan, uh, the sons Gedaliah, Zeri, Jeshiah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah. I really should learn to pronounce all these names one of these days. Six, under the direction of their father, Jaduthan, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Of Heman, the sons of uh, Heman, Bukiah, Mathaniah, Uziel, uh, Shabuel, Jeremoth, Moth, Hananiah, Hananiah, Eliatha, Gad- you know what, y'all get that, you can read. Verse 5. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God to exalt his horn. For God gave Heman 14 sons and three daughters. Now, what is a seer? A seer is a prophet. Okay? All these were under the direction of their father for the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, string instruments, and harps for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jaduthan, and Heman were under the authority of the king. So what do we see here? We see worship and prophesying. They're prophesying with their instruments, okay? There's something about this worshiping in spirit aspect. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now stop there. What did we read before in Jude? 
we've talked about these men who have crept into the church who were causing all sorts of problems. Here we see the same thing going on. He's saying, watch out for these people. Mutilation is exactly what you think. Eunuch. Think of a eunuch. Do you know what a eunuch is? If you don't, I'm going to tell you in the most PG way I can, they were self-castrated for the service of a king, queen, sometimes God. Jews did not like that. They had no respect for that because you were mutilating your body. And that's why he, in verse 3, says, we are the circumcision. Remember, that was the sign, one of the signs of the covenant of the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He's making a distinction between what they were doing and their mutilations and having confidence in that versus what we are. We are the circumcision because we worship God in spirit. It's a spiritual circumcision that is done. We worship in the spirit. What is this talking about? We are talking about this exuberant worshiping of God, leaving our flesh aside but crying out to Him. You see how it's used in the Old Testament. We see the idea here. So can we worship in the Spirit? Absolutely. So praying in the Spirit is not too far-fetched. But we don't think about what these words mean. Now, let's look at Mark chapter 12, verse 35. It says that Jesus answered and said, While he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say to the Christ, uh, that the Christ is the Son of David? For David himself says, By the Holy Spirit. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a foot, your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then this son? And the common people heard him gladly. What's he talking about? Well, he is speaking. He said, by the Holy Spirit. Can you speak by the Spirit? Apparently so. David did. Now what would we call that likely today? In some manner of another, we would call it a prophecy. To speak by the Spirit. And how does one do that? They are led by by the Spirit. And they have to allow themselves to speak. We don't force ourselves to do it. He doesn't come in. You guys, I know I've used this analogy, but I really like the show Third Rock from the Sun. You guys, anybody remember that show? Like, incoming message from the big giant head. Am I alone? I'll have YouTube ready next week. Then you'll get it. But it would just like, this message would take over his body. That's not what happens. But here it is. We, we worship by the Spirit. We pray by the Spirit. We speak by the Spirit, but we're not done. Acts chapter 19, verse 21, it says, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit. When he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Have you purposed in the Spirit today? No. Do you know what it means? No. Have you read that multiple times and assumed that you did? Yes, you have. As have we all. But we're seeing all of these things that we do in the Spirit. We're not just talking about praying. There's a lot of things that we do in the Spirit. We, we have to understand, what's the context of Acts 19? He knows he has to go to Rome. He's getting ready. He's going into Jerusalem. He's got to go to Rome. God has put that mandate on his heart. So he purposed in the Spirit. He is following the leading of, of God here, the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Did you righteousness in the Spirit today? I'm on the clock here to spell this right. Joy. Can you read all this too? Peace. All of these are in the Spirit. Is it fair to say that it's not just simply praying in the Spirit? You see, all of these in their context, you've got to keep in mind, we're talking to Jewish people. That 
their mindset is different than your and I mindset because the covenant that they came from were waiting on promises. We're in a covenant that the promise has been fulfilled. They were waiting on the Messiah, and they knew when Messiah came that with him he would be establishing his kingdom, and there would be a time given of which all of these, the Spirit being poured out upon all flesh. Your sons and daughter will prophesy. He's pouring out his Spirit. This is the time that they are in. The coming of the Messiah is what they were waiting for, enabling all of these things to take place. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. What is the distinction being made here? The same one that was being made in Jude. You cannot speak by the Spirit. You cannot pray in the Spirit. You can't do any of these things unless... You have the Spirit. There is a distinction between believer and non-believer. Born again, not born again. You don't get it by going to church. Otherwise, those men that Jude was talking about would be automatically in. So there is a distinction made. You are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. Why does he say it like that? Because the you is not what you see in the mirror. Some of us are grateful for that. The you, and Paul talks about this in Romans 7, the things I want to do, those things I don't do, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do, is talking about our spiritual nature. You and I are in the Spirit. Most Jewish people did not claim to have the Holy Spirit. They would tell you they didn't have, there was a time of silence, there was only certain people would have the Holy Spirit come upon them. But they knew that the Holy Spirit would be made available to all people in the end times. When Jesus set up his kingdom, remember, that's what they were waiting for. They thought they had two messiahs. The suffering servant, they adopted the idea that that was them because of all the persecution that they had faced. But when the messiah showed up, he would be the reigning, conquering king. Instead of one messiah coming twice, they were waiting two messiahs to come individually. So, what is praying in the Spirit? We know we can't do any of this without the Holy Spirit. It starts with being born again. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So, speaking in tongues is being tied here to speaking in the Spirit. You guys see that? There's a whole great big context going on here. But he is tying these two things together. We don't speak to men. We speak to God. We speak mysteries because we don't understand. That's what it goes on to say. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. How can you do that in the flesh? Your spirit is praying. Is your spirit not who you are? See, what this is talking about is your spirit is connected with the Holy Spirit. Because you can't do this if you don't have Him. When I speak in a tongue... In the Spirit, I speak mysteries. That word speak can be used for pray. Same thing. All of this cannot be done unless we have the Holy Spirit. So when we look at that, where Paul tells us to pray in the Spirit at all times, what is he talking about? He most definitely is referencing praying in tongues. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 14. And in case you didn't know, the same guy wrote them both. So, He's using something here. So while I questioned you last week, are you sure? It was simply to make you think, 
why is it we believe that? Because if we're going to make a truth claim about this, we have to be able to defend it. And it goes beyond this. In fact, I'll get into this more next week. But it says here that pray in all kinds of prayer, praying in the Spirit. And you can see that this is directly tied to tongues. Now, why does that matter? Because who we are inside is really who we are. That's our connection. This is part of the armor. We didn't even realize that. We often overlook it. We talk about all the flashy parts that you can see. We love that helmet, the breastplate of righteousness, you know, the sword of the Spirit, all that stuff. But what about the part that nobody is seeing? What about the part that doesn't stand out? This praying at all times, where do we pray? In the Spirit. This is, we're connecting our heart to the Spirit of God to pray out things that we don't even know how to pray. We have to supplicate to do that. We have to humble ourselves. We have to put ourselves down and say, all right, God, I'm just leaning on you. For one to pray in tongues is a humbling experience. To not try to figure it out in your head and like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. This sounds crazy and all of that. It's like, I'm just going to yield myself to whatever God is doing. And if we can do that there, then we can do it in every part of our lives to humble ourselves and say, God, this is your checkbook. My time is your time. What do you want me to do with it? My job, I work for you. What do you want me to do today? Every day we wake up, we have to do the same thing. You guys with me? You guys see this? Understand why we're talking about this. This is a crucial part to the armor because Paul said it's got to be there. So now we've got to talk about if we can pray in the Spirit being a part of the armor, and that is praying in tongues, well, how do we get there? How do we do that? It's crucial. Unfortunately, this is not taught today very often. It is implied in charismatic churches, but it is not taught. And so therefore, we have beliefs with no conviction. We just believe it. We can't tell you why. We're going to break that down next week.